0: This podcast is brought to you by the Specialty Produce Network.
1: On the Front Burner puts two no-nonsense culinary professionals on air discussing tough industry topics, interviewing fascinating food personalities, and providing penetrating looks at the industry that we love.
0: We don't always agree and often provide compelling personal insights from a unique combination of life experiences. You know, it's a lively give and take. It's by no means conventional.
1: Elaine owns Sweet Cheeks Baking Company and is a winner of the Food Network's Cupcake Wars and Fabulous Cakes. A seasoned industry professional, she is a cake designer and a certified sommelier.
0: Don is a chef, an award-winning journalist, and a culinary educator. Together we take a not always pretty, sometimes funny, and always entertaining look at the world of food and beverage.
1: Hello and welcome to On the Front Burner. I'm Don Williamson. My co-host Elaine is not here today. Uh, we're going to go it alone without her, and we've still got an exciting show, just not quite as exciting with her gone. We're going to spend today talking to a prodigal son who has returned home to San Diego and has had a pretty exciting career in the culinary industry and is setting up a very exciting project right here in the city want you to meet the um, chef-owner of Well-Fed, and we'll tell you more about Well-Fed in the second segment, and that's Philip Esteban. Philip, how are you?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for being here today. And when I say Philip's a prodigal son, we have a lot of chefs here in town, and they come in from New York and from L.A. and from Seattle and from Phoenix, you don't very often hear a chef reaching heights here in San Diego who's from San Diego. And not only is Philip from San Diego, he's from National City. Tell us a little bit about National City and being and being from there and being here and being where you've been.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, my dad is in the military or was in the military. He's retired now. And so when he was stationed on the base, the first place that we lived was a National City. Um, and so, uh, I do have fond uh, memories of National City. It was a lot rougher back then compared to now. Um, but, you know, I, I, grew up all over South Bay. We, you know, I grew up in National City. After National City, we, um, went down to San Ysidro and we lived down there over by Wing Park. Uh, and then afterwards, um, I, Lived in Paradise Hills to Bonita, and then um, that's when kind of all throughout I've always been cooking. Um, but the opportunity to come back um, to National City to work on my first solo project, um, it ended up just being um, a bigger narrative for me. That's um,
1: great, and we're going to talk more about that project as we go on. I'm a little interested, or a lot interested actually, in... How you transitioned from cooking at home with the family to actually working in restaurants, and we want to talk in, in a little bit about some of the places you 've worked and and the impressive uh, resume that you 've developed, but how did you make that jump
0: um, you know truthfully um, you know i 've always been i 've always been cooking uh, I think back then in the Early '90s or, or late '90s, early 2000s, uh, the resources weren't there for someone like myself or anyone in the culinary world to to really think that you could make a living uh, being a chef. Uh, and coming from a Asian and Filipino family, I was always told to, you know, become a doctor you know, become a lawyer, become a nurse (laughs) of all things or join the military. Um, I'm actually the only one in my family that didn't join. Um, But I was going to med school at UCSD and um, I was actually living uh, over there by San Diego State. Uh, I was cooking dinner for my roommate and he was like, dude, you should just drop out and go to culinary school. You love cooking. You've been cooking your whole life why don't you just um go to culinary school so it was like i think like 2002 or 2003 uh june i dropped out and then that august i started culinary school
1: so you dropped out of med school to go to cooking school yeah and your family didn't disown you
0: i mean at first they did yeah um they i mean they didn't disown but they were very they were questioning uh, the reasons you know there wasn't much information out there on creating a life um, within this world, uh, within this hospitality. Um, I think in the Asian community, it's always about going for the safe route. Um, But I've never been that type. (laughs) I've always gone against the grain. So um, it wasn't until um, my first sous chef job at um, the guild in Barrio Logan, where my parents came and ate for the first time, and so they came in for dinner. you know, I definitely styled them out, um, explained all the dishes, and after the meal, my dad said that he could just see the excitement on my face and after that, um they've never questioned me and's been sixteen years or seventeen years, so yeah, it's uh most probably would be disowned or have to work their way back. They just had to come in for dinner one time, and they've never they've never questioned it.
1: Great. Um, did you have any sort of business plan in mind? Had you thought, okay, I'm going to not enter the medical profession. I'm going to go to culinary school, but how am I going to make a living? How am I going to survive? Was that in your head at all?
0: No, not actually. I was probably just like every other cook, um, that was, you know, coming into the industry and it was very wide eyed. And, um, I found a lot of excitement in creating and uh, learning new things about different cultures and learning new techniques and things like that. Um, But I never really thought of it like long-term at that point. It was just, this was something fun um, that, you know, kind of everything that you're not supposed to do, play with knives, play with food, (laughs) play with fire. Um, And it wasn't until years later where things started to click for me. Okay.
1: So you said your first sous chef job was at the Guild, but your actually first job in the kitchen was at the Firefly and Dana Point, right? Yes, yeah. How and when did that happen?
0: Um, It actually, I got the job um, like maybe three or four months before I started culinary school. Uh, One of my good buddies that kind of was an early mentor for me, when I decided to go to culinary school and I was asking around, um, you know, we went to the same middle and high school, and he graduated from culinary school. So I reached out to him, and I was debating CCA uh, up in Polk Street in San Francisco or staying here locally in San Diego. Um, Cost-wise, I ended up uh, opting to stay in San Diego. And so um, I kind of wanted to be ahead of the curve. And so um, when I dropped out in June, I just went and straight got a job as a prep cook at the Dana Hotel
1: so uh, what was it like always cooking, cooking for your friends, kind of going by your own rules, and suddenly you're prep cooking a kitchen? Did that kind of make you say, wait a minute?
0: Uh, n- no, actually, because um, maybe it was just the way that I've always kind of – I've always been very mathematical about things and strategic. And so um, – you know I was the when i'm cutting herbs like this is my thyme pile this is my parsley pile and um i was very uh even though i started um it was my first time being in a professional kitchen um i caught on like very very quickly and so um even my my chefs at the time were just like you know, they didn't even have to really oversee me. They just kind of let me go. It was just learning. And so I just remember, you know, filleting a whole salmon for the first time by myself outside of school, you know, because at school you get one fish for like five students. And so how much are you actually doing? But then I go into the Everybody Dana. Everybody gets
1: to pull out one pin bone. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. but then I go into the Dana and they're like, um, here's 16 whole salmons. You need to fillet that on top of... Two k case, two cases of filet mignon and everything that you have to do. So, you know, it was it was fun. It's exciting. Like I found um, what uh, even for my wife tells me right now, and she's just like, you found not many people find their passion, and you just happen to find it early in your life and in your career. That like you just love what you do, and I could I would be there like sixteen hours a day and not even. Like, all right, ready for more. Let's do it again. <laughs> all
1: right. School. Uh, and, and this is a double question in a way. You went to the now defunct Culinary Institute. Mm-hmm. Want to know a little bit about how that experience was for you and the benefit you felt you drew from that because culinary schools are closing yeah, and all over the country. And at the same time, there's a shortage of cooks. And that seems like an oxymoron or something that doesn't go together. First, tell me about your experience at school and how worthwhile you think going to a culinary school is rather than just jumping into a restaurant and, and, and learning the ropes.
0: Um, I would have to say that my experience with culinary school is that when I started, was, it was just the beginning phase of Food Network and the celebrity chef and so I remember my advisor when I first um, went in to interview. They were like, "Why are like you're not one of those like TV chefs, right?" And I'm like, "No, I want to come in and learn." And um, and so I just happened to be in that perfect timing of before it just became the Instagramable social media um, kind of TV celebrity world. And so the mentors that I had there, which I still see on the daily currently are, they're all amazing. And um, I learned a lot of life lessons, a lot of techniques, um, a lot of things that uh, I think got lost in culinary schools now, um, where these chefs had years and years of experience that you can't just pick up a book and learn. They were um, like, just techniques and ideas and just philosophies in in the kitchens that they were just handed down through generations and generations, where I think now um, the culinary schools kind of became a lot of different things it became what we
1: like to call them is puppy meals, yeah, they just want to put out as many yeah. puppies as many cooks, yeah. whether they can cook or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I really resonated with your comments about finding your passion. I was a journalist for 20 years and traveled all over the world and worked around the United States as a journalist. And it wasn't until I'd been in the business 20 years that I realized that my real love was cooking. I went to chef school, became a chef, worked in restaurants, hotels, caterers. And then taught for eight years. Yeah. But it took me 20 years to get there. I'm really envious of you grabbing it so early and being able to resonate and have that inside of you. So that's wonderful. Um, So you went to school there. And it was a lucky time, I guess, because a lot of the students that I dealt with came in with that Food Network mentality. Yeah. I always remember that I had a student come in the first day and she said to me, she says, and so what do I do if we're cooking and somebody turns my stove off? I said, why would somebody do that? <laughs> yeah. She said to slow me down so I can't. I says, no, this that's not what this is about. But there's been that whole mentality and I w- and we're going to talk a little bit more about it. I think that the bloom is off the rose. Yeah. Now people realize restaurant work is real work. You're like it's not going to get a TV show, and you're not going to get yeah. your own restaurant in, in, in the first year. And I think that that may be part and parcel of why we have so few chefs. That and the fact that it's so hard to make money in the back of the house. Yeah. But – um. Keep telling us your story. We'll get to some of that. I,
0: I think um, for culinary school, I think the biggest change, and it, I mean, it could be a lot of reasons, you know, cost of it, um, the leadership, the, the actual instructors themselves, um, but to, to even the workforce that was coming into, um, into school, you um, A lot of it, too, were, you know, like me and you, like second careers, you know, second choices and um, versus people coming right out of culinary school or high school and going straight in. And so a lot of times, literally the last maybe two years of when AI was open, I would go and guest speak every month and basically just talk about the industry. And I would give out business cards and, you know, try and like look for people to come and work in the restaurants. And, um, you know, the common thing that I would ask is, because I would ask the class, like, you know, raise your hand if there's anyone working in the industry. And out of the 60 students, not a single hand. And this was the graduating class. Mm-hmm. Mind you, I come from, like, I-, I wanted to work before, so I'd be ahead of everyone else in school. Now these students are graduating, two years in, have never worked in a real kitchen. And when I asked them, you know what type of job they'll be looking for. They're like, oh, I'm not looking for a for a cook job. I'm looking for a chef position. And how are you looking for a chef position without any real life experience? You've never held a knife in a professional kitchen, and don't call the palate eating in the in the school dining kitchen like it gives you like some experience, but not. Not the real thing.
1: Yeah, I think that's part of the issue. And I think you also hit on it with cost. I was catering uh, chef at the French Gourmet for several years. And it used to break my heart to have students come in there who were working. And I'm paying them $10 an hour. And they're trying to pay off a $40,000 loan that's going to be stuck with them for the next 20 years. I'm
0: still paying my loan. Mm -hmm. you know, And so uh, that loan plus interest – with what you make um, hourly or even salary as a chef, but let's just say, you know, cost of living for San Diego. I mean, there's so many things against you. Like a house, you you need a dual income. It's a dual income city. And if you're a cook, you know, and someone else that like, you know, the starving artist where someone's got to pay the bills and someone's the artist, you know, like how how do you even make a living and how do you survive in this city?
1: It's rough. I don't know how that happens, but let's— Keep going here. So you went to um, school mm-hmm. and you got your first gig at the Guild, which yeah. turned out to pretty, be pretty fortuitous for you. Tell us about that. Um, and tell us about the Guild. It was such a unique concept, especially especially for Barrio Logan yeah. at the time that it opened.
0: Yeah, um, at the time that it it opened, it was uh – Maybe two thousand five, two thousand six. Um, it was still, you know, a very um, rough neighborhood. Um, but Paul Basil, one of the local architect designers of restaurants uh, in San Diego, um, he owned his metal shop, and so he decided to turn half of his metal shop into a restaurant. And so. Um, it, Melissa Mayer was the executive chef. Uh, Craig Jimenez, that early mentor of mine, uh, was the um, sous chef at a time, and I came in as a line cook. And then kind of six months in, um, they promoted me to my first sous chef job. And um, it was a big – it was exciting time because of the energy. Like Barrio Barrio Logan was still rough, but, you know, you had this fun – architecturally designed restaurants um, that, you know, Food Network and all these Riviera Magazine were doing photo shoots every week. You had, like, Lamborghinis and Ferraris parked out in front in, like, this kind of uh, uh, rough neighborhood. And it kind of brought this appeal to it. And so, um, honestly, I felt like it was ahead of its time. Um, You know, not in terms of, you know, cutting-edge technique, but just doing uh fun food doing
1: what it did, where it did it yeah mm-hmm.
0: and so um yeah, and so you know, unfortunately, after three years it it closed um I mean, Paul basil went on to do a lot of amazing things in the city for restaurants um but it was a I think you know, I always say that nothing ever lasts forever, and so you could it kind of becomes capsulated in time, and it was a important time in my life. Right. And yeah. so from
1: there, where did you go? What happened? Kind of um, take us up until you got ready to leave San Diego, which is yeah. a whole other question I want to yeah, ask so you so after,
0: um, after the guild and Barrio Logan, um, uh, I went and opened up Craft uh, and Commerce in Little Italy. It was the, their, uh, the first opening, the original opening uh, with Consortium Holdings. So I came on as the um, opening sous chef for them. Um, And that also was a, a definitely fun time. I mean, um, I'm sure listeners out there kind of know what's happening in Little Italy right now. Um, craft and Commerce is what started that wave. You know, there was the family-owned restaurants, but kind of like the cocktail um, gastropub scene was really developing at that time. And the cocktail program wasn't even around in San Diego. Um, Shortly after Craft & Commerce, we opened up Noble Experiment, which was the first speakeasy in San Diego. And so that's when Consortium Holdings really took hold of the craft cocktail scene in San Diego. Um, And
1: this holding company, that's another question that I kind of want to throw little things in. More and more, we hear that freestanding restaurants can't survive anymore. You either have to be part of a chain or part of a holding company. Is that something that you believe is happening?
0: Um, I I honestly believe it's it is happening. I I, I don't want to say it, it's not because there are a lot of big groups in San Diego. Whether it's Consortium Holdings, you know, uh, the Cohen Group. Uh, RMD, like kind of all those groups, and um, you know, for better or for worse of the food scene in San Diego, um, you know, I think there is an opportunity for freestanding restaurants, but I think they have to um, they they have to mean a lot more um, because I think just overall, uh, I think we're the real. We could get we could get into this a little bit more down the line, but I think we're the real. Um, big thing is, is in, in, in any industry is a consumer base.
1: Right. I agree. I agree. Um, okay. So you, you're you doing this, you're rolling now, you're opening <coughs> up in Little Italy, and then you decide to leave San Diego. Why?
0: Um, because a, up until that point in my career, I've only been in San Diego. And at that point, I've been in San Diego, I think five or six years at that point. And I just, I needed... Um, I needed to change, I knew I needed to challenge myself and um, and uh, and grow some more, and so at that point, being a line cook what
1: made you know that because I think that that 's an important point because so many young chefs now don 't know when to go don 't know when to stay don 't know when to move. yeah, how did you know that you needed to move on
0: um, when I got comfortable and i don't for me i don 't like to stay comfortable. Um, it just, it's, uh, I think it's a trait that, um, that el- San Diego has in general. And, uh, for me, it's just one of those, as soon, as soon as I start to feel that, then I know it's time for a change and I need to move on. On top of, um, another thing too, is that San Diego is very clicky. And so if you if I stayed in San Diego, I went to school in San Diego, worked in San Diego, worked for San Diego chefs, I would just be doing the same food that everyone else is doing. And so, you know, I just, I just knew I needed to make a change in my career and and in my life of what I needed to experience. And so um, I've been fortunate enough to have great mentors. I think that's what's missing right now loyalty definitely for sure but it goes both ways you can't have just a cook that's loyal but then the mentor be like well let me off cast you whenever you know something is wrong you know like you a mentor is also seeing someone through the thick and thin and um and being able to guide them even at their lowest points you know, like, like Instagram right now, Instagram's only likes, there's no dislikes on there. So everyone's always on these highs. And so a mentor, they just want, they just want someone or something when it's, when it's on the up, but when it goes down, then they, they cast them aside. And so I know, I've, I've been fortunate to have mentors where I haven't always made the best decisions in my career, but I've had the fortunate, uh, part of it of, people guiding me and people that I could ask questions and help me out of, okay, should I make this decision in my life? What should I do? Should I, should I move to LA? And that ultimately became my decision was to kind of move. So I moved from uh, craft and commerce and uh, what I was actually searching for was some specialty items. I knew I could, I could cook on the line with the best of them and, uh, and, what I wanted to learn was specialties. So a big part of it was um, I wanted to learn how to make charcuterie. And, um, and so I met with this local chef named Pete Ballesteri, um, who became a big mentor in my next phase in my life. And he was working for Tenegreens at the time. And so um, they were looking for a sous chef to go up to Santa Monica to open up um, their new store and uh, and we just made an agreement that I would learn charcuterie from him while in the process of helping them open up this location so they've moved me up to Santa Monica um, for Tender Greens and um, they kind of uh, they kept their word and I was able to learn and make charcuterie while opening up a store I I ended up staying with them for like four years and opened up like seven of their locations, um, which was an invaluable experience, not just in San Diego, um, but, um, you know, all over LA from working in their Culver City store, obviously opening up um, their Santa Monica location, which revenue-wise Third Street Promenade, it's on second in Arizona. Like that, that location is like right outside the Santa Monica farmer's market. Imagine all the fresh produce that we would get in. The farmers didn't want to go bring that back to their farm. So they just came to Tender Greens and just dropped off everything extra. They were like, give me a sandwich. You could have all these tomatoes. Wow! And so um, we just had this abundance of amazing product. And um, I was able to connect and work with some amazing chefs and, and stage and work in kitchens on my days off. Um and, but you don't was, hear
1: much about stodging
0: anymore. No, not at all. I mean, I still stodged. I Even just last year, I did four stodges last year. I still make it and a point. And explain to our listeners what a stodge is uh, in case a, they don't a know. A stage or a trail is um, where you go work for a restaurant or a chef particularly where um, you provide them hands in the kitchen for experience and knowledge. Uh, and, and, no tra- and no money. And no money um where a lot of people these days they they come in for a stage and they're like are you gonna pay me for my hours and i understand that like you should be paid for your work that you do but if you're coming to a restaurant to work and to learn something uh then and for like a day or two then that's fine um but yeah, that that whole thing is lost now. Yeah. But um
1: So you're doing great in San Diego when you decide to go to LA. You go to LA, sounds like you're kicking it there. How you get to New York City, my home?
0: <laughs> um actually, I was um it, it was like kind of the the holiday times and at that point again, I was I was getting comfortable at that point. Um but I'm like big on transitions. Like once you you can't just rest on your laurels. And once you get to a certain point, like, like there's, you have to keep striving for something. And so, you know, after opening up multiple stores for them and uh, working around the city at that point, not that there was always things you could do, but um, (laughs) you know, I wanted to get out of LA because of traffic. But uh, (laughs) at that point I was like, well, what is the, the next culinary Mecca? And, and over the over the last four years, I would travel up and down the West Coast to San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, and, you know, obviously dine at restaurants, travel, uh, stage in kitchens there. And so I've already been up and down the West Coast. And so um, it was kind of like the holidays. And I was like, it was holidays, I think, 2009 or 2010 at that point. and And um, I was like, I'm just going to move to New York. So... In January, I bought a one-way ticket <laughs> to New York. Uh, I didn't have a job lined up, but I did have a good friend. Um, I did have a good friend uh, that lived in New York, and he was uh, he had a place to stay. So I, I asked him if I could you know sleep on his couch. So he said yes. Bought a one-way ticket, and over the next six months, I kind of planned out where I would go. So I um, continued to work for Tender Greens for four more months moved back to San Diego for two while I saved money, and then uh, packed up a duffel bag and moved to New York.
1: And you wound Um, up with David Chang. Tell us about that.
0: (laughs) Well, my roommate worked at uh, Sambar at the time. And so I had a couple stages lined up to try and find a certain kitchen I wanted to work into. But um, I always, at the time, Momofuku was new. They just came out with their book, and I was everyone was excited about it. And so when this opportunity came about, I went in and staged, and um, I remember going into the kitchen. So I got there June 2nd. Uh, sorry, June 1st, and June 2nd was my stage. And so um, I, I went into the kitchen at 10 a.m., mind you, they didn't ask anyone to come in until 1.30. So we arrived at 10 a.m. Uh, ready to work and I, they just got me going on setting up uh, prep areas. And so I started to prep and go through my whole day and it was about, I think, like 10 o'clock and Chef Matt Rookifer, uh who was a the chef there at, uh, at the time um, kind of pulled me into his office and was like, you know, you're doing a great job. Uh, would you want to come on board full-time. And so I accepted the position. It was $12 an hour uh, living in New York, and um, it was perfect. And how long
1: know? were you there?
0: Uh, about a year. Now that's yeah. exciting. Yeah,
1: That's the kind of thing that I would love yeah. to do and have happen. And, and so he did that. He was in New York, and now he's come back home.
0: Well, the great thing is, like, New York, though, you're, you work – your your days are 16 hour days. Mm-hmm. So I worked 4 days on, 3 days off. The great thing about that is that you control your prep. Like no one else is touching it. You know it's yours and so you set yourself up. And so on my 3 days off, I would be I would be staging. I I staged at Marea. I staged that WD50 it's still open. That's so, a great
1: work ethic. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about that in the second segment when we'll hear about the new project that Philip Esteban is working on right here in San Diego in National City. But for now, you're on the front burner, and I'm Don Moore.